Welcome to Changing the Rules, a weekly podcast about people who are living their best lives and advice on how you can achieve that too. Join us with your lively host, Ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world. Hello, everybody, and uh, we're sitting here today in our wonderful new studio for podcasting in Willow Street, Pennsylvania. Nobody knows where that is, but I'm sitting here with an engineer, Luke Cagno, who has helped us put this podcast system together. And without Luke, everything falls apart. And uh, we're here to talk with another guest. I'm going to introduce him in a minute. He's spectacularly interesting. Okay, and uh, the theme of our show is twofold. It's about changing the rules. And, uh, you know, all through our life, we're saddled with rules. When we grow up, our parents give us rules. Then the church gives us rules. And then the schools give us rules. And the next thing we know, we got so many rules, we don't know what we're doing. And, and unfortunately, rules have two parts to them. They either tell us what we can't do or what we have to do. And what we've been doing on this show is interviewing an interesting group of people. We call them the luckiest people in the world because these are people who go off on their own and craft their life under their own terms. And they find to do this, they need to change the rules. Now, they all need rules, but they're building their life on their own rules. And we have one of those fascinating and motivating and interesting spirits with us today uh, in the form of Jim Comey. And Jim, say hello to everybody. Hi, everybody. That was a weak introduction, okay? <laughs> um, so, so anyway, uh, Jim is one of my neighbors, and I met him the other day, and I found out uh, he started life as a teacher, went from being a teacher to a musical producer, to being a writer extraordinaire, to winning all kinds of awards, and, and he's got an interesting journey to tell us about it. So, uh, Jim, start somewhere in the beginning, or maybe in the middle, or wherever you want, and tell us a little bit about how your life was modified to get to the point where it was exciting and motivating to you. Okay, Ray, thank you. Uh, I'll start early on. When I was um, around sixth grade, I got a very unusual phone call, and the phone call was from my third grade teacher. And my third grade teacher, I had moved from the school where she was my teacher, and she called and she said, I would very much like to take you out to dinner. And I thought, this is crazy. Why is my third grade teacher calling me to invite me to take me out to dinner? That's very bizarre. But as she continued to speak, she said, I'm going to take you out to dinner, but in particular, I want you to meet someone. And this is a very fascinating someone. And is your mother home? Because I'd like to speak to her. So I handed the phone to my mother going, no, 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 don't don't go out to dinner with my teacher. But my mother spoke with this woman and I got overruled. And next thing I know, the teacher is showing up a week or so later and I'm going out to dinner. And it was awkward and strange and bizarre, but I thought, "I'll, I'll flow with it. Let's see what happens. And really the reason that she was taking me out was she wanted to meet a very unusual fellow. And his name was Father Robert Green. And Father Green had been a Maronol missionary in southern China. He had gone there in the 40s to try and serve the people there. And while he was there, he survived the the bombing of the Japanese with the Chinese. 
and he had set up some parishes, and things had been going extremely well, and then the communists arrived. And when the communists arrived, they said to Father Green, you are an American spy, you are uh, a blight to our country, and you are under house arrest. And for 16 months, he was not allowed to leave his house, and he didn't know how he was going to survive. And after 16 months in his house, they then took him out one day and they said, you are a spy, confess, and if you don't confess, we are going to cut your head off. And he said, I have nothing to confess to. I am not a spy. I am a Maronol priest. And uh, stop this nonsense. And they lined him up and they said, it's time to die. But somehow or other, they did not kill him. Word was that Mao Zedong had said, let's not kill this priest. Let's parade him through China. Let's take him through towns, and through these towns, let's beat him up. Let's put him in a cage, beat the tar out of this poor fellow, and they did that for a period of time till they took him to Hong Kong, where they threw him over the border into Hong Kong. Well, this is a very long and strange story. Why am I telling it? Because Father Green, when he came back to this country, he was emaciated, he was beaten up, he was bedraggled, he was emotionally worn out told his story to a couple other Maronol priests. Well, next thing you know, Life Magazine and New York Times are posting his story. And they said to him, Father Green, you need to write a book. Tell us about this experience. And he did. It was called Calvary in China. And that's why my third grade teacher was taking me out because she wanted me to meet Father Green because she wanted me to become a Maronol missionary. She thought I'd be a great addition to the missionaries that are out there and I could go out and I could spread the word and I was fascinated by this fellow not only by his story but the fact that he held a book up in front of me and signed it and I thought to myself this guy is a writer I've never met a writer before this is so cool time passes the thought of writing is in the back of my head I enter into Education, where I was a, a teacher in uh, rural Pennsylvania for a while, and decided to write uh, a novella, did so, wrote a bunch of other books, uh, had a couple of literary agents. Some were selling, some were not. Things were sort of spinning around. And after 17 years of working in education, kind of getting worn out at night by grading papers every night and every weekend, I finally decided it's time to do this writing thing. I'm going to do this writing thing, but I still have to pay the rent. So somehow or other, I found myself uh, as an actor, uh, both in corporate films and industrial films. And in one particular gig that I had, I ended up sitting for a period of time across from a woman. She and I were in this industrial film, and the lights kept blowing out in this room where we were supposed to shoot. And the woman looks at me and says, you know, I would very much like to have a children's theater company. I would like it to be a professional children's theater company. I'd like it to have original scripts. And our intent would be to present this to kids who have never seen live professional theater. And I would love to do this. And I can produce it. And I can act in it. My sister can direct it, can choreograph it. I can't find a writer. And I looked at her. And I said, you're looking at one. So this all came out of dinner with 
your elementary school teacher. My third grade teacher called me up out of the blue and said, I'm taking you to dinner. And I said, oh, sweet Lord, what's this all about? Yes. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting that you chose the path that you chose because, uh, you know, you wouldn't look really good if your head were cut off as a marital missionary, <laughs> would it? Not at all. Okay. So, so let's backtrack a little bit. Okay. Uh, you, um, you actually started your career after you got this idea implanted in your head and you taught. You taught kids. What grades did you teach? How did you get into the teaching business? I got into the teaching business because it seemed natural to me when I was a little kid to, uh, to work with others. Although I'm generally a fairly shy individual, the idea that you could play the role of a teacher kind of uh, appealed to me. And I told student teachers for years, you're going to do four or five shows a day. In front of these kids, you have to have something that's going to grab their attention. You're, it's not going to be cheap or unprofessional, but you are going to hold their attention. Um, so that was a natural thing, and where I taught was in uh, Kenneth Square, Pennsylvania, uh, to the sons and daughters of mushroom farmers and the sons and daughters of engineers, and then suburban Philadelphia uh, to uh, grades of 1,000 per grade, very huge uh, particular system. Um, but within, within all of this, I kept teaching writing whether it was technical writing, whether it was research papers, whether it was creative writing, so that I was engaged in the writing process. The hard part of that is in teaching writing, there's a thing called grammar. And as an English teacher, you know, I have to wade through all the things to get kids and adults to get more proficient in terms of grammar. And that's what became very wearing. Okay, so, so you've actually always thought yourself as an actor. Yes, as a performer, yes. And, and, and an interesting way for teachers to think. And, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't there to evaluate your teaching, but I would have much preferred somebody who was upstage acting than yes. somebody who's trying to teach me grammar out of a book directly. If yeah. you think of the teachers yeah. that had an impact on you, it's generally the teachers that held your attention and probably struck some kind of a nerve. When I was in high school, I went to a Jesuit high school in Philadelphia. When I was in high school, my junior um, English teacher said to me, Comey, you can write. I said, thank you. And he said, let's send some stuff off to subcontest. And we did, and I got honorable mention. And he said, you ought to stick to this. And that, again, struck a nerve from this Marinol missionary to now there's a Jesuit priest who's saying to me, Comey, you got a little bit of ability. And I listened to that. Okay, now uh, let's let's go back. You're teaching at this point, and you're trying to write. And I imagine the teaching was necessary because they actually paid you. That was important. Yeah, and and writing doesn't always pay you, does it? Writing rarely pays you. I have been a member of the Authors Guild since the mid 1970s, and the vast number of professional writers that are out there are doing something else. Matter of fact, the vast number of people in any of the creative arts are doing something else to support themselves. Otherwise, they'd be living in cardboard boxes. All right, let's, let's go here from your teaching career. How did you make the break from teaching to go into the theater? Um, actually, I said to my wife, uh, I need to make a change. And she saw that it was important on my part to make that change, and she agreed to, to do so. So we lived on her income. It was a struggle, but she knew that I was committed to it. 
And what's fascinating is when I, these two ladies and I started this children's theater company called Stages of Imagination. And by the way, we are on uh, the internet, www.stagesofimagination.org. When the three of us got together and decided we were going to do this, we had no money. We had no actors. We had no theater. We had no set. We had no costumes. We had nothing other than talent. And guts. Yes, and a desire to do this. And the driving force in this, Vicky Junta is the producer, and Carmel Gutierrez Mayo is the director, and I'm the writer and director of education. Because the other thing we decided was we wanted to have plays that embedded important issues for kids. So we wanted not only for kids to come during the day, preschool up to fifth or sixth grade, and see and hear these plays, but then to learn something from them. So I also wrote educational materials that went back with the teachers, and then uh, that it was built upon that. So, so talk a little bit about the experience of taking kids who had never been to theater before. And, you know, what, how did it work? There were a couple of surprises. One of the surprises was we did a show. Uh, we were in our... Th Two professional theater groups, or theaters themselves, were in Aston, Pennsylvania, Newman Theater, uh, Mayor Theater at Newman College, and Vasey Theater at St. Joe's College. And we're at Mayor Theater, and we have a big children's show. It's called The Monster in the Woods, and there's a kids from the city of Chester, most of whom had never been to live professional theater before. And one of the actors, Podsnap, is now creeping down the aisle, heading towards the main stage. And kids looked over and saw this evil character coming down in full makeup and costume. And they thought, we don't want that evil person to get up there, and went over and proceeded to kick her to stop her from getting up on stage. The actor was not happy. And what we realized was we needed to say at the beginning of each show, this is pretend. Do not leave your seats. And even at the very end, we realized we have to take off our costumes and all the rest of it so they can see we were just actors. The part that was so fascinating was the actors at the end would go back behind where the kids were leaving and say hello to them and what they were told. One of the little kids went up to uh, one of our performers and the performer said, what did you think of the show? And this little girl said, there be no glass. And the actor looked at her and said, I'm sorry, what did you say? And she said, there be no glass. And she then figured out what she meant. It wasn't television. There was no separation. There was no glass. Ah. It was live professional theater, which is remarkable when you think about it. In, in, interesting. You know, and I'm sure you can tell us a lot more about this, but let's, let's go off in a different direction. You know, through your career here between teaching and theater and writing and performing and all of this stuff, uh, I, I think a couple of things happened. Uh, you met an awful lot of people in the writing business. I did. Uh, and just before we leave that, just to give a plug for Stages of Imagination, uh, by the time we ended up being done with, uh, well, we're actually on hiatus right now because my two partners are watching grandkids, but we had 100,000 plus kids come to our shows from three states. We ended up converting some of the plays in the CDs that won Parents' Choice Awards and Parents' Choice Recommendation, converted one into a film that won Silver Tally Awards for children's programming and children's audience. Am I bragging? Absolutely, because we, <laughs> we worked very hard 
Yeah, cool. And and you obviously, you know, you you got the kids into the theater. You know, if they actually wanted to beat up the monsters, you know, you you did something here, right? What it was was word of mouth. We started out with a small number of teachers that heard about us, who told other teachers, who told other teachers, and then it ended up in the National Education Association newsletter. So it got a lot of good press. But as far as meeting other writers, that's been fascinating. Uh, over the years, in various ways, I've ended up meeting a, a bunch uh, at the so in a Soho loft in New York City a number of years back. Uh, I ended up uh, meeting Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, he was a little tipsy, uh, but he, he was fun to talk to. I met James Baldwin. I had just been teaching his short story the night before at a community college class. Asked him about what was going on in the short story. He told me about it, its background. When I went to the community college students the following week and said, I talked to James Baldwin and this is what he told me, they didn't believe me, but I did. I, I did talk with him. At that same party, Eel Doctorow was there, Allen Ginsberg. Norman Mailer, Erica Jong, uh, lots and lots of people. One actor in particular, I'm sorry, one writer in particular that I met that was fascinating. I went to a children's elementary school that had a theater day, a uh, uh, theater actors performers day. And as a thank you, they sat us down in the cafeteria and they gave us lunch. And there was a fellow sitting across from me and he said to his wife, I can't do this anymore. And I'm thinking, my God, he doesn't want to come to these children's things. And I looked at him, his wife looked really upset. And he said, I can't do this anymore. And I looked at him, I said, are you okay? He said, during the day to make ends meet, I work for a local magazine where I give a short synopsis of, well, it was a national magazine, of TV shows. And he said, I'm going to throw up. I can't do this anymore. He said, I've got two or three books they've not sold. They're young adult books. And I just don't know if I can do it. And she said, Hang on. You can do it. I have full faith in you. Hang on. Eventually, I think it was three months later, I saw in the newspaper that this particular writer had just won the Newbery Award. So that one of his books took off like a rocket and the rest of his books were now selling like hotcakes. So here was a guy that was ready to throw in the towel saying, I couldn't do that. I can't keep writing. I can't keep doing this. And it hit because he was strong and he persevered. You can tell us who it is. Uh, or not. Yeah, his name's Jerry Spinelli. Okay. His name's Jerry Spinelli, and he went from there. He won the Newbery Award for Maniac McGee. Okay, so, you know, you've got an interesting story here, and I'm going to shorten it because we're getting near the end of our time here, and there are okay. a couple of other things I want to do. You found a way to make this work, and obviously the writer that you just referred to found a way to make this work. I, I also know, because you let it slip earlier, that when it got time to get your kids into college, you actually went back to teaching. I did. So, again, you made it work. Yes. So... Isn't that wonderful that you can do what you want to do and find a way to make it work? And the way that I ended up going back into teaching, not to extend your time here, is as a writer, I was contacted by uh, an organization. They had a presentation they were going to do, do at Swarthmore College. The, the following day, their pre presenter had gotten sick. They called me at the last hour and said, would you help us out? I said, absolutely. Went and gave the presentation as I was leaving. They said to me, is there any way we could ever help you out? I said, actually, I'm thinking about getting back in education. My daughter's getting ready to go to college. And within a month, I had a job. If I had not done that, if I had not simply helped out as one writer to another group of writers, I don't know how that would have played out. And that, 
I'm going to slip in a quote here. One of my favorite writers is Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell said, if you can see your path laid out in front of you, step by step, you know it's not your path. Your own path you make with every step you take. That's why it's your path. So it's these steps that we take and being aware of what's around you and listening. All right. We have to quit right there. That, we can't top that. Okay, so so uh, Jim Comey, thank you so much for being here. Uh, You know, when we write up our little summary, we'll put in notes of how people can get in touch with you if they want to. And some of your publications, Uh, the the theater that you're working with is still live and running, right? Yes. Stages of Imagination, Inc. And you are still writer in residence. I am still writer in residence and director of education. And if you were to go on the internet and look for me, if you look up Jim Comey, you will get the former director of the FBI, who is, I, we believe, probably a distant relation. You would look up James Hugh, H-U-G-H, Comey, and then I will pop up on the internet. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And it's been a pleasure meeting with you and talking about your experience. And uh, Luke, sign us off, please. Thank you, right. Thank you for listening to Changing the Rules. Join us next week for more conversation, our special guest, and to hear more from the luckiest guy in the world. It's going to have to be a different man. Now, may change.